You're listening to your public radio station, KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for joining us. Ahead this hour, we talk with author Susan Parrott, whose father was one of the more successful bank robbers in Oklahoma in the late 20th century. Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums speaks with her about her new book, Catch Me or Kill Me, The Saga of Charles Parrott, one of America's best bank robbers. That's in our second half hour. Up first today, though, a new scenic section of the Fayetteville Traverse Trail is open to the public on the U of A campus. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich recently took a guided hike on the multi-use trail to bring us the story. Eric Bowles, director of the University of Arkansas's Office for Sustainability, this morning takes an old dirt path into Oak Ridge Hillside on the south edge of campus, created over decades by college students taking shortcuts to class. And the Oak Ridge Hillside was kind of an underutilized zone of campus that had some social trails. Students, you know, just trying to get to and from class, kind of stumbling their way through the woods. This narrow, steep woodland trace was among the first rough trails on campus to be improved. Named the Oak Ridge Trail, it connects to a paved mountain bike loop called the Freshman Experience, which is interconnected with the Fayetteville Traverse. The citywide Traverse Trail interconnects with the Razorback Regional Greenway. The 37-mile-long Greenway is a shared-use trail that extends from South Fayetteville north to the city of Bella Vista. Bowles pulls out a map to show us the Fayetteville Traverse. This 18-mile loop that kind of starts and stops on the University of Arkansas campus, and that loop goes through the north side of Markham Hill to Centennial Park, down to Mount Kessler, up through the Arkansas Research and Technology Park, and then back to the U of A campus. We hike the Oak Ridge Trail, which connects to the new U of A Fayetteville Traverse Trail. At this time, this is the transition point between the paved Oak Ridge Trail and the new natural surface trail that is the Fayetteville Traverse. This section of Traverse Trail is built into a steep mountainside. Below is the U of A sports complex. Above are residence halls and fraternities. The route is shaded by elder Osage orange, maple, and post oak trees. I think it's important to keep in mind that the trail is open to all kinds of users, all ages and abilities bicyclists, walkers, runners. We really want everybody to use the trail for, for however they wish to use it. Motorized vehicles are prohibited on the trail, although electric scooters and skateboards are allowed. The red dirt crushed stone trails built packed down over time, shed rain, and provides great traction. When you're building trail, a big part of it is stormwater management. You know, st- um, we're We want to encourage sheet flow. We don't want to channelize the water because that'll lead to erosion. And we also are trying to minimize the amount of time the water spends on the trail tread because we really want this trail to be usable about 24 hours after a big rain. And, And this past Saturday, we had a football game out here just following a big storm and people were walking along the trail and it was dry. It dried out really fast. This trail tread is four to six inches here of a mix of decomposed granite and clay that ensures the durability of the trail tread. The decomposed granite's there to dry quickly and and be stable, and then the clay's there to kind of, the glue to hold it all together. 
the cost of the UA Traverse Trail? The project is fully funded by Tom Walton and Stuart Walton, and it's a gift to the University of Arkansas. They're just gifting us trail. So the Tom and Stuart uh, gave the grant to the trailblazers, and then the trailblazers are subcontracting with various trail builders to build out the Fayetteville Traverse. The key subcontractor, Progressive Trail Design. Yeah, Prog- Progressive Trail Design has has built a lot of amazing trails. They were maybe you know the first significant um, privately owned trail building company in Northwest Arkansas. And honestly, I, I'm glad that we're working with Progressive Trail Design because they've got a lot of folks that are Fayetteville locals that have been building trails for 20 plus years, and it's really nice to put them to work on a University of Arkansas project. The UA Traverse Trail, which meanders through forests and fields on campus, is a state-of-the-art natural surface trail designed for walkers, runners, rollers, and cyclists who are commuting or recreating. I do feel strongly that it's, you know, feeding two birds with one scone and creating an opportunity for people to have a little fun and folly on their daily commute, which I think is so important for quality of life. I know I ride a bike to and from campus every day, and it improves my quality of life in a significant way, mentally, physically. I feel lucky to have that opportunity and to live close enough to campus that I can do that. We head north on the Traverse Trail past the National Penhellenic Council Garden Amphitheater across busy Maple Avenue into Maple Hill Arboretum. The trail features a new stout cedar bridge, one of several, which spans a gully. Gorgeous uh, cedar, uh, very natural aesthetic, kind of blend in with the landscape, built to last a hundred years. After the bridge, the trail surface transitions to inlaid flagstone, locally quarried. The traverse takes a different character and and it's all sandstone pavers, pre-cut sandstone pavers to spec that um, make up this really durable trail tread. And they create a really unique experience that I don't know where else you would find. The trail crosses Razorback Avenue into the Fowler House Arboretum and switchbacks up west through the trees. At the end of the University of Arkansas section of the Fayetteville Traverse on the north north uh, western tip of campus, the trail then goes on street for a little bit and then it'll eventually go into some natural surface trail on Markham Hill and it'll go under I-49 and over to Centennial Park and some of that connectivity is still being created by the city of Fayetteville. It'll be about a year plus before there's full connectivity on the full 18-mile loop. The presence of the Fayetteville Traverse ultimately aims to encourage what's called active transportation, human-powered mobility to conserve fuel, reduce vehicle emissions, and improve health. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The U of A Office for Sustainability publishes a comprehensive website describing the types and locations of natural trails across campus. You can find a link at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Although cycling is a popular activity among residents and tourists in the region, not everyone knows how to ride a bike. 
Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports free adult first ride classes are available in Fayetteville, and workers are wanting not only to reach out to communities, but also to create cycling groups. Anya Bruin got a new bike, complete with pink, fluffy handlebars when she was eight. Bruin's dad took her outside on the farm to teach her how to ride the bike. There was not much instruction in this lesson, just one gigantic push and the hope of pedaling fast. This was special to Bruin because her father contracted polio while serving in the Navy and could not walk well. Um, so my dad taught me to ride even though he couldn't. Bruin cycles at least every other day, oftentimes with her dog, and she is the Trailblazers bike education manager. Earlier this year, she led the first of three free community classes teaching adults to ride bikes at the Yvonne Richardson Community Center. The classes are through Trailblazers and Experience Fayetteville, and Pedal It Forward is providing the bikes. As long as you can, remember when we were finding our balance point, do that again. Find your balance point. Although some of these classes have been offered in other areas of Northwest Arkansas, like Bentonville, this is the first round of classes in Fayetteville. Oh, this program has been, in the four years that I've been working for Trailblazers, the single most rewarding thing that I have done. Um, in the three hours that I have spent in front of these folks, it has been really hard not to cry because the moment someone learns to ride a bike, I equate with learning to read. It's a magical moment in which you were on one side of a line and then suddenly you're on another. Before the class, Gabriela Ruiz, the Trailblazers program support specialist, unhooked and helped unload 12 bicycles from the long black trailer and truck she parked outside the center. Ruiz passes on bike after bike of varying tire widths and colors for different height sizes to be taken into the center's gym in preparation for the attendees. She says sometimes the thought of learning to ride a bike can be intimidating, especially if you didn't learn to ride at a certain age. For her, it's about bringing something to the adults who want to learn to ride and creating a community around them. Yeah, and I think we've also been trying to push the idea that or starting to realize that it's not just about reaching the people who are adults and don't know how to ride. It's finding their families and friends that help give them that extra nudge. The bikes are lined up in a row at the gym next to a table of blue helmets. Tires are being checked and aired up as lines of bike pedal pairs are set down beside their bikes. Bruin says they take off the pedals to teach the balance method. They stay off bikes while attendees learn to get off and on the bike, how to use the brakes, and when they find their balance, going back and forth across the gym's polished wooden floor. 
And then once they start getting more and more comfortable, we put the pedals on and then we go through a series of steps where they continue to do the balance method, but then they use, um, you know, body awareness to find a pedal. As Northwest Arkansas has grown, so has its biking trails. As of 2018, the Walton Family Foundation contributed $74 million toward the construction of 163 miles of trails. Around 90,000 bicycle tourists visited the region in 2017, and in the same year, about 27% of its residents rode a bike for six or more days, according to the Walton Family Foundation. Bruin says this program began to form because some of the existing resources for people are beginner-friendly, but do not roll back far enough to serve as an entry point. So um, we recognize that there is a whole population of people out here who now see, they look around, they see a lot of people on bikes. Um, Fayetteville is Bike City USA. Bentonville is mountain bike capital of the world. And they're looking around going, where do I enter? How do I start? Outside activities are popular, but nearly three quarters of outdoor participants in 2020 were white, according to the Outdoor Foundation. Beck Rodriguez is an outreach specialist from the University of Arkansas who is working with trailblazers. And Rodriguez says he wants to make this activity open to more communities. So it's basically taking this activity to the Hispanic communities uh, just so they can see a, fl- a friendly face, you know, because there's a lot of activities going on there like in the community, but not everyone knows about it. So how are they going to know if they... They don't have somebody that tells them, you know, the activity. So Rodriguez says Bruin was directing the classes on her own. And then he and Ruiz joined the team as a part of a collaboration among Trailblazers, the University of Arkansas, and Pedal It Forward. He says the response from people are positive. Well, the first class I attended, there was about seven people. And now, I mean, counting the bikes, we see that it's incrementing uh, more people. So the Bruin says one attendee immediately called her mom after attending a class to tell her she learned to ride a bike. Um, I came by later because she didn't have a a way to take a bike with her, but we had a bike for her to to keep. So I I dropped it off at her apartment and she asked me for a hug. And this person I had just met like two hours before and she asked me for a hug and I just melted. It's been wonderful. Usually there are two to four volunteers and the class count cutoff is 10. Bruin says the organization scheduled a participant and volunteer social with the goal of creating bike riding groups. She says they will be launching other classes such as refresher courses, classes for teenagers, and could bring sessions to businesses. The upcoming free adult first ride course is next Wednesday from 6.30 to 8 p.m. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. John Thurston, Arkansas Secretary of State, has declared a proposed ballot measure that would legalize recreational marijuana is insufficient for inclusion on the November general election ballot. Arkansas Issue 4 is a citizen-initiated ballot measure that would legalize marijuana use for individuals 21 years and older, with the plan that the sales tax would go to fund health care research, law enforcement, and drug courts, among other things, across Arkansas. The State Board of Election Commissioners declined to certify the ballot title and popular name in August, claiming that they were misleading. 
Responsible Growth Arkansas, the campaign sponsoring the initiative, filed a lawsuit with the Arkansas Supreme Court challenging the board's decision, which brings us to where we are today. Steve Lancaster, an attorney for Responsible Growth Arkansas, says this is a procedural step, and he remains confident that the court will rule to keep the recreational marijuana issue on the ballot. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with backcountry and urban footwear, clothing, equipment, and more. Pack Rat is dedicated to conservation and waste reduction. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. A new episode of Resilient Black Women is out. In the latest episode, hosts Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson answer many commonly asked questions about starting therapy and finding a therapist. When we usually do this, when we talk to clients, like when we do speaking engagements and when people ask us this question, we kind of just run down the list. I kind of have people stop, um, start at a place called psychologytoday.com. Um, psychologytoday.com is a place where many therapists are can list their information on there. It's kind of like my space for therapists, basically. <laughs> Every therapist has their own little website and they put their information on there. The nice thing about psychologytoday.com, though, is it, when I get phone calls from people who live in other states, like I have friends and family who are saying, I'm trying to find a therapist, I tell them to go to Psychology Today <laughs> because they vet the therapist to make sure that that therapist is actually licensed in the state that they live in. So Psychology Today will not put a therapist's information on their website if that person doesn't have a valid license to be practicing in their state. So that's why I kind of like to start with psychology today. Um, another place that's really good where I found my therapist here in Northwest Arkansas was therapyforblackgirls.com. So that is a website that is hosted by Dr. Joy. She is a therapist in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, she created a list of therapists that are all black women all over the states. And you should be able to enter in your zip code, um, what type of insurance you have, and what type of, um, like, what are, you, what are you looking for to talk about in that therapist? Like, what that therapist, like the depression or anxiety, and you can find somebody close to you. So um, I was able to find my therapist, who's a black woman in Northwest Arkansas, um, by using therapyforblackgirls.com. So if I have, particularly if I have, like, black women or women of color or families of color looking for a therapist of color, I will give them information about therapyforblackgirls.com. Um but also, Psychology Today also has a cool feature on there where you can type in African-American therapists. Like if you're looking specifically for an African-American therapist, you type in, again, the type of therapist you want. Maybe you heard of a phrase called EMDR or you heard a particular therapy that you like, I know I need someone who does CBT. You know, you can type all of that in and Psychology Today will bring up therapists that match your search. You can also put in your insurance, your zip code, your city, and they will bring you up people who live really close to you. Psychology Today is also great because a lot of therapists on there have put on a video to explain who they are. So you get to like kind of meet them a little bit, um, check out their energy. Um, some therapists also put a link to their personal website um, so you can ask more questions about them. Um, and then they tell you whether or not they have space. Um, other places that you can look through is like your employer. So your employer may also have 
um, like your HR rep may also have um, EAP, like an emergency assistance program where you can get therapeutic services. Like they may already work with an organization in your area where they pay for a number of services. Um, My favorite one to talk about is if you are a college student um, or a grad student or even a PhD student. I have a friend who's a PhD student in Chicago and her son died last year. And she told me that not only did her PhD program offer her 12 sessions, but it offered everyone in her family 12 sessions for counseling. And some of her family members did not live in Chicago. And so they found therapists who were ready for them in the state that they lived and offered them all 12 sessions. That's amazing. I was like, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So if you go to school somewhere... Ask all the questions. Your mm-hmm. school probably pays for you to have free session. I'm, I used to work at JBU, John Brown University, up in Salem, and they offered their students eight sessions for free for the whole year. So you just you just never know what your university already offers you. And then, you know, Denisha and I, we used to do school-based therapy. So if you have elementary kids who are looking for therapy, um, I do think that there was a lot of like positive things to have a therapist at the school mm-hmm. for kids who are already at school. You know, you don't have to check them out of class. Right. Like, you know, they don't miss the whole day of school because they have to go get therapy somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. And so so just think about that. If it's more convenient for your child to go see a therapist in school, there are tons of like people who provide in school therapy. And I would say if you if you see a therapist, if you have a kid who does see a therapist outside of the school, I would just ask if that organization does make a call to your school, like if they could come see your kid at your school. It's, it doesn't hurt to ask. They could just say, oh, no, I don't actually do that. I only see kids out of the office after four. Um, but some, some places, like I know Easton Counseling Center, they do. Mm-hmm. They do go into the schools mm-hmm. and see people's um, kids um, at school. So just something um, else. And then what else will we add? Oh, there are churches. There are also a lot of churches that have a lot of programs where they have been connected to some of the other organizations like Christian or non-Christian um, organizations. I know that there are probably some churches that would even pay, like if you found a therapist somewhere else mm-hmm. and they may pay your out-of-pocket fee, you know, to go see a therapist. So I would say ask whomever you can. Um, and then the thing, I think the one thing that's really hard though when trying to, how to start therapy and trying to find a therapist is probably trying to call your own insurance company. So if you have insurance, mm-hmm. to call the number on the back of your card and your insurance carrier could also say, hey, these are all the therapists that we know that will be covered by your plan. And then your insurance carrier can also tell you what your copay would be and all that type of stuff. Um, and then something that me and Lee were just talking about before you stepped in, Denisha, was what if you already found a good therapist and they may not take your insurance? Mm. So we That's talked about like, question. I've had some clients who insurance actually covered them out of network mm-hmm. and they would pay up to 50% mm-hmm. of their, their fee. So if you don't get anything from this part, just call, just right. call, ask around. Mm-hmm. Because also, too, sometimes insurance companies will, if it's out of network, you pay out of pocket. But then if you send in your receipts, they They will will reimburse reimburse you. you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there Mm -hmm. are uh, options out there. Yeah. And then if you have a therapist who 
there may be some therapists who are only cash pay. They don't take insurance at all. And so what that therapist would do, though, that therapist should inform you like, hey, I only do cash, but I can give you a super bill. I'll give you a basically a really big receipt that explains what was a service that they charged you for, how much did that service cost, and then you can take that super bill to your private insurance and see how much your private insurance will cover. Mm-hmm. So any therapist you go to who is fully licensed, and um, even if they don't take insurance, they will know how to create a bill to make sure that your insurance company can see if they cover that service. Right. That was Denisha Simpson and Joy McGowan, the hosts of the podcast Resilient Black Women. You can hear much more from their conversation in the latest episode, which is out now. You can listen to Resilient Black Women at our website, KUAF.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mic check one, two. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. KUAF now produces eight podcasts with important topics ranging from mental health to cryptocurrency with more than 20,000 downloads a month. You can reach these listeners with information about your business or organization by sponsoring a podcast like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, or others. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast on KUAF, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. News of Queen Elizabeth II's death last week rattled many around the world. Britain's longest reigning monarch spent 70 years in one of the most high-profile positions on Earth. We reached out to one Ozarks at Large listener in the UK to get a reaction from inside the country. Reporter Daniel Carruth brings us this postcard. My name is Natalie Hoteri, and I'm from Rogers, Arkansas, and I'm a tutor and business owner, and I'm currently in London. So the mood is pretty somber in the city, and I think the death of the queen was really sudden, which sounds surprising because she was 96, but a lot of people were really shocked, including me, that she died so suddenly. Um, She was just confirming the new prime minister two days before she died, and I think the news that she wasn't doing very well just came a couple of hours before the announcement that she passed away. And so I was on the train just reading the news and there was some information about how she was in Scotland and her family had been summoned there to kind of be with her. And I think that's when everybody in this area kind of knew that something was wrong because I think that's not very common for that to happen. People were just kind of concerned about her and her health, but hoping that she would rally as she has so many times in the past and then, the, yeah, the announcement came a couple hours after that. So at first, it was just when the on the day that it happened, everyone was just, "Have you heard that the queen died?" and very sad, and surprised. And then, honestly, I, this is very British, but it's just business as usual. I think. I mean, there's a lot of people kind of going to pay their respects to walking by the palace or walking by any of the royal residences to put flowers down. There have been so many different royal processions where the new King Charles III is kind of going in and out of Buckingham Palace. And when you go to get on the train or the bus, every single station has a memorial for the queen. If you walk down the street, any street in all the shops, there's memorials for her on the in the window, all of those kind of things. This is a majorly significant time in history because this hasn't happened again for 70 years. And so when you think about how different the world was then 
to how it is now and the constancy of her presence. So there are lots of people who are not royalists who don't agree with necessarily the monarchy being in power, but they do really respect the queen as an individual and respect her sense of duty and her uh, her willingness to dedicate her entire life. And from what I kind of can gather from the people that I know here, they really admire that fortitude and that dedication. And so even if maybe politically they may not agree or disagree with certain aspects of kind of the royal people um, that are in power, they admire her as an individual. Mainly, it's been interesting listening to younger people versus older people talking about their point of view and their kind of their thoughts on the queen and the monarchy in general. And I think for younger people, maybe people younger than 20, the concept of the monarchy is old-fashioned and not as attractive. The older people that I've talked to that have kind of known the queen in their life for their entire lives have had more of a profound response to her death. Just because I think for Americans, it's interesting for us to see that because we are used to having a change of leadership every four to eight years. And so uh, to imagine having someone that has been a figurehead or a symbol of power for 70 years is something that's even difficult for me to imagine that. I mean, 1952 was a completely different world, so completely different time. I think I was surprised by the amount that people love her here. And because I don't personally feel that way about my politicians back at home. But I imagine that if there was a person who was someone that I knew my entire life, someone that I respected significantly and saw that constancy, then I could imagine feeling that way. But it it is surprising how much they really do love her and how sad everyone is because of this. Even And it is interesting, too, to see people say, you know, well, I'm not a royalist, but I really am sad that this happened and we're really going to miss her and what she did for the country was really good. I mean, mainly positive things about her. Her life, the fact that it's been so publicized for her entire life, it's just remarkable that you can go back and see all that archive footage and see images of her with her family and the legacy that she was a part of. And then watching that continue with her son, who's 73, I think, and how he's been kind of waiting in the wings and working towards this for his entire life and how immediately as soon as she passed away the second that they announced that that he was starting with his role and he I mean obviously this has been in the works for decades they probably have had this plan for a long time but just remembering that she was a human being and she was a mother and a grandmother and that her family is grieving her loss and then also immediately having to go to work and give speeches and stand in front of thousands of people and on these televised events and just thinking about, I guess, the interesting kind of contrast between the public versus the private individual that she was and feeling sympathy for her family and also great. I mean, I think people here feel grateful for her 
presence and her contribution and just being proud that she lived such a long life. That audio postcard was produced by Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth inside the Karen Taha News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, now featuring the medical marijuana, county sales and use of tax collections, plus local business news from Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and information at 725-0394 or nwabusinessjournal.com. You can discover something for everyone in the family this fall at the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville. New programs begin soon for homeschool families, early learners, and creative kids aged 10 to 14. For more information and registration, you can visit amazium.org. Growing up, Susan Parrott idolized her father. Charlie Parrott was also beloved by his neighbors and friends in Stillwell, Oklahoma. What many of his neighbors knew, but a young Susan did not, was that Charlie Parrott was a bank robber. A really good one. Parrot's exploits and his Robin Hood-like tendencies made him a local hero and a major thorn in the FBI's side. Susan Parrot writes about her father and his legacy in the new memoir, Catch Me or Kill Me, The Saga of Charles Parrot, one of America's best bank robbers. Susan recently talked with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums about the book and asked about when she learned about her father's criminal activities. Well, that is really funny because in the small town of Stillwell, um, everybody knew my father was robbing banks except for me and my brother. And I think that my parents and my family were pretty good about uh, keeping that from us. And the foreword in the book talks about how people didn't talk about it. It's like... It's like a lot of people really liked him. If I was to walk down the street with my dad, you would think he was the mayor. All the hellos, Charlie, how you doing? And he was very polite and very pleasant, and everybody loved him. And so it was kind of like the town secret, even to his children. Uh, my mother had said during a fight, I thought you were going to stop Robin Banks. And I heard that, but I was only like, eight, maybe. And so I was like, oh, that she didn't really say that, did she? And none of the kids ever teased me and said, your dad's a bank robber. But I think that the reason they didn't uh, tease my brother or I was because my father was very generous. And I remember at Christmas, he made a deal with a guy at the shop that had bikes and toys that on Christmas Eve, he'd come down and buy out the shop with stolen money, of course. And then we would go around in a truck on Christmas Eve and deliver presents and bicycles. And he had a sack of money. And we'd go around to the more um, – poor areas and areas there where the native Cherokee lived, and we would give out gifts. And then on Christmas morning, um, we'd go to Mom Parrot's, my great-grandmother and my Aunt Polly Parrot, and they would cook a big feast, and the, then those ladies would cook a second feast, and they then we would go to the Adair County Jail in downtown Stillwell, and take food and magazines and cartons of cigarettes and deliver those on Christmas Day. So there, he had 
a reputation, but he also had the reputation of being a good guy. He's a good guy, but he robs banks. So when did you find out? I did not find out until I was in sixth grade. Okay. He'd gotten arrested. This was something he did before you were born? No. 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 In fact, I don't want to give away too much. Right. But uh, I actually rode along first one, 1958. So before I was born, he was a bootlegger. All these years later, you write about it. Yeah, yeah. Was that hard? That was very hard. That was something I never thought I would ever want to do. Uh, that was my dad's story uh, in 1981. Us Magazine had done an article about him. It was a feature, three pages. I was living in California. He called me, said, run down and get this magazine. That, if, if people don't remember, Us was the, equiv- the equal to People Magazine. They were in right. hot competition with each other. Yeah, Right. So I got excited for my dad, and I said, you know, I called him back after I got it. And I said, now you're going to get what you want. You want to be famous. You want a book. You want a movie. This is the type of thing that's going to propel you to get those things that I know that you want. But uh, it didn't work out. And he hired a writer from New York who made him feel like uh, he didn't understand country people or cowboys. And my dad fired him after reading a couple of chapters. Now, that guy did, (laughs) you know, contact me later and told me, how 40 years ago he wanted to write the book. Oh, I want to go back to that Us article because you have a copy of it here mm. in, in our studio. And I want you to read the – so it says the, the big headline in this article, Bank Robber. But what bank does it robber. say below that? I love it. It says, Charles Parrott's way of withdrawing money from banks made Pretty Boy Floyd and Bonnie and Clyde seem like pikers. All right. So Pretty Boy Floyd, Bonnie and Clyde, two of the biggest names in this world, this region and and this sort of world. And your subtitle is The Saga of Charles Parrott, one of America's best bank robbers. What does best mean there? I thought my dad would like that title. At first, I was like one of America's most prolific bank robbers. And then one of my best interviews with one of his attorneys Gosh, that was a great interview. He said, after court, one of the FBI men came up to him and said, Charles Parrott is one of the best bank robbers that has ever lived. Now, the FBI wanted him so bad. It, it's really what drove my father to rob more banks. He loved the cat and mouse game with the FBI, and he loved it so much and if when I interview people, a lot of people would say, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about outsmarting the FBI. He even went back to one area and robbed a bank five miles down the road, stole the same type of car. I mean, and he's out on bail. He is a thrill seeker. Ooh, that's a dangerous game to play. Yes. And... They couldn't catch him. And the reason I came up with the title for my book, Catch Me or Kill Me, is that as I interviewed people, 
they said he was scared toward the end because he thought they were going to kill him because they couldn't catch him. And he was paranoid, and he wanted he didn't like to be alone because he didn't think that the FBI would kill him if he was, wasn't alone. You, you mentioned you had this spreadsheet, and you just showed it to me with all these different incidents. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, and I won't include it on air if you don't want me to, but are these all solved? Do they all know your father did these? Well, my father was proud to say that he did after the seven years of uh, statute of limitations. And wow. he even wrote to judges and wrote to uh, about people that had been uh, arrested for robberies that did not commit them. And he did get some people out of jail. And there's some really sad stories in there of things that didn't go right and people getting arrested. Um, I think my dad had guilt for some of the things he did. Um, it was it was rough finding out some of the things that happened. I cried many times for my mom, for my grandparents, because, you know, they went through it all with them, too. Mm-hmm. So it's been, like, super emotional. Uh, I did a podcast the other day where I just broke down and cried because uh, it's hard. And I thought it was going to all be fun. What kind of conversations did you have with your father, if any, about this line of work? Here's the thing, Kyle. Your parents never want to talk to you about things like that. Yeah. Um, he really didn't want to talk to me. Um, you know, it's it's like it's still a secret. And now I know my parents better than I ever knew them before. And just from the stories of all the other people, I I still try to understand their relationship because they're so different. She's so straight. She doesn't drink. She doesn't smoke. She plays piano at church. And he's the bad boy. And in the diary, she says she's going to quit him many times. But she always comes back to him. So it's two opposites. And it's it's fire, and it's 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 really you know their story. Uh, a lot of people are going to like the character of Reba Sue. She may seem to be the straight arrow, and she may have you fooled, but she's not. And the FBI, boy, that that game of cat and mouse. I did find a an article in the Oklahoma newspaper that said J. Edgar Hoover wants to know why there's so many unsolved bank robberies in Oklahoma. And this is around the time that my dad is going full swing. And when I finally I've been waiting for FBI records for eight years, right before I was gonna publish, I got the mother load. I was like, oh my God, it's finally came. I love looking through those because J. Edgar Hoover said, I want to know everything about Charles Barrett. And so they had to give a report. So they give what he looks like, always dresses impeccably, always wears a white shirt with a a hat and wranglers and a big buckle. You know, it's the cowboy look. And they said on characteristics, very polite. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, they have, you know, and then they they say in their report why it's so hard for them to catch him. And they say he's got five vehicles and two motorcycles, but he has 24 other vehicles available to him. And then and they follow that up with it's like he's got a gang. But it's a gang of townspeople. It's a gang of bull riders. It's a gang of, I mean, it's, to me, that's what the story's about. It, the story really is about Stillwell and the people that live there. I was going to ask if, if I go to Stillwell now, not you, not his mm-hmm. daughter, but just some guy, and I ask about Charlie Parrott, what sort of reaction do you think I would get? Oh, they probably won't say a word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they're used to being quiet. And, and that was something I found, too, when interviewing people. It's like they would at first be a little coy with me and tell me a little bit. But you could tell they were still being loyal to Charlie. And they still saw me as that little girl. And then after a little bit, they'd warm up. Or a beer. Let's have a beer. And then they'd kind of loosen up. But I could also tell that they didn't want to give away any secrets. And some of them didn't give any away, especially one that was one of his favorite partners. And I could tell he was protecting my father. And so every interview was different. The hardest interview of all was a victim in Vianne. You know, I would go on what I call the bank robbing tour. I would get the newspaper articles, go find the bank, hopefully it's still open, and see if I could find people to interview. And uh, and then I'd also, I love to uh, leave the bank and drive quickly on the getaway route, just mm-hmm. to get an idea of it. Sure. That's kind of one of my things. But in Vianne, I got to speak to one of the tellers, and as when she answered, she said, I'm really, I've, I've been trying to forget about that day all my life. And it's going to be really hard for me to talk to you about it. And I felt so much shame and I felt like I couldn't even talk. All I could say was, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that happened. And, you know, if you don't want to talk about it, it's okay. And that was really hard. And I never wanted to interview another victim, and I know I should have, but it just killed me inside. And it killed me because that person was hurting. Mm. And here I was bringing it back up. Yeah. So that was was really hard. After this, your personal journey, the interviews, the research, putting the publishing, what's changed for you? (sighs) Ah. Gosh, a lot. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of just taken over my life for the last eight years. And now I feel like I can finally lay it down on the mantle and say, okay, Dad, I did it. Uh, I'm done, even though I'm not done because I, I want to do as many book signings and things as I can. But it's, it's a relief uh, to know that I was able to do it because it was not in my wheelhouse by any means. I'm a, I'm a real estate expert and a rugby coach and had to give that up to, to do this because it did take so much time. Uh, so I, I'm kind of relieved. 
I'm proud of myself for seeing it through. Um, and it, it was really hard work because I'm not a writer, but I have a lot of stories, and I couldn't even fit all of them in the book. And I was so overwhelmed in the beginning uh, and still a little bit overwhelmed whenever I'm trying to write stories. So I feel, I feel good now. I've, I'm, I'm happy with what I've done. I am going to release that second manuscript um, because that's what happens at Writing Pad where I took my classes. They want to see more of my voice in there. And so in the follow-up book, I'm going to call that um, Letters to Leavenworth. Mm. And that's going to be more about how I felt about things that were going on. And, you know, just uh, it's also going to be about doing the interviews because I just feel like I need to, like, tell people how it all happened. All right. I want to bring this conversation full circle. At, when we first started talking, you mentioned about going to Pineville. Yes. The bank there. Yes. When I went to Pineville, that was my dad's first bank robbery, and I was so excited, and I was going to go in. I was going to ask for a, a tour of the vault, and I just had all these wonderful plans. And the first thing I like to do, though, when I get to a town is go to the library and get the goods, because not every story is on newspapers.com. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to the library and I read about the robbery, and it kind of shook me up a little bit. Uh, a couple of ladies were hurt. His partner hit a couple of ladies. And so when I walked into the bank, I just had this wave of shame and felt just sick to my stomach, and I just had to go outside and gather my thoughts. Uh, it was it was too much. And I went back in sat down with the the bank president and he said I wish you'd came in a couple of months before because we just we just fixed the wall where the bullet was still lodged in there for over 50 years wow so sometimes you think something is going to be wonderful and then your emotions kick in and it just it was hard it was hard, and I, I I drove away from there and drove the getaway route, and got to the place, and I said, "So this is where you lost him." And I had a little conversation with my dad and said, "You're not going to lose me. I'm gonna I'm gonna track you down on this, and I'm gonna get these stories." Susan Parrott, thank, congratulations on the book. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Kyle. Susan Parrott is the author of Catch Me or Kill Me, the saga of Charles Parrott, one of America's best bank robbers. She spoke with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last month. She'll read from and sign copies of the book Saturday at the Train Depot in Stillwell, Oklahoma, and Monday at 6 p.m. at Fayetteville Public Library. She'll also host a reading and signing September 24th at the Public Library in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Amenities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus on-site fitness facilities are available. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org 
for information. This is 91.3 FM, KUAF Fayetteville, Van Buren, Bentonville, and Cedarville. 91.3 FM, KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Kyle Callums, Daniel Carruth, and Anna Pope. Resilient Black Women is hosted by Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson and produced by Lee Wood, KUAF's general manager. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah, and it's written and performed by Daryl Sean. Don't forget you can always take Ozarks at Large with you wherever you go as a podcast, through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and most anywhere else you find your podcasts. We will end today's show with a song from the band East of Zion, recorded in the Furman Garner Performance Studio in 2013. The band will perform Saturday as part of the Cane Hill Harvest Festival at historic Cane Hill. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. with another brand new edition of Daily Ozarks at Large. Until then, please be well, and we will talk again soon.